I want to say a word of thanks today to all the technical team who keep me going because I'm, I'm not up here often enough to memorize the routine. Uh, I'm Curtis Foreman. I'm one of the token geezers in this congregation. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, that's who I am. Okay. But the, the worship team and, and uh, the scriptures and the comments uh, by uh, Mr. Latoni here. My good friend, what's his name? <laughs> Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Nate. Because they were talking about <clears throat> strength, power, authority, victory. And that obviously has been on my heart all this week. And I want to begin by reading from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive, you who are reading my words, Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery, bondage and submission to so many elements in your life to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as true children. And by that spirit, we are able to have the confidence to address the Lord of the universe as Father, Abba. That's a miracle right there. The Spirit himself convinces our spirit that we are the children of God. And if true children, then we are heirs. And that's our key word today. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, as always, there's a condition. We have the authority of the kingdom to the degree that we are under the authority of the kingdom. And that's the way the authority always works. When somebody walks up to you for good or bad, they will say, I'm here in the name of whoever or in the authority of whatever entity or government, provided we suffer with him, in other words, go into his kingdom and through his process and campaign in order that we also may be glorified with that same resurrection life. That's what God has for us. And remember, if you don't remember anything else, remember, we are heirs of God. And that's not just then, it's now. The kingdom of God is central all the way through the Old Testament. It ruled and overruled every kingdom that it ever chose to encounter. In Egypt, guess who won? In Philistia, God won. In Syria, God won. In Babylon, God won. In Persia, God had the victory. Psalm 145 says, All you have made will praise you, O Lord, your saints, your people, your true children will extol you. They will declare the glory of your kingdom. They will proclaim the news of your might and authority so that all may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom, Lord, is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion, our authority, our government endures through all generations. 
I don't know how long that is, but it's, it's long enough. It works. In the New Testament, the kingdom again is the primary theme. In the Gospels, mainly the preaching of Jesus, the kingdom is mentioned 110 times. Now, before we start comparing, the church is mentioned three times. <laughs> but if I had to choose, I'd rather be a part of the kingdom than a part of the church, but I would hope there's no separation and distinction. I believe God's kingdom on earth is his people. In, uh, in uh, Acts chapter, let me see, chapter 8, Philip, Philip the evangelist, is preaching and his preaching is about the kingdom. This comes out in chapter 8. With Paul, in all of his messages, and especially in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, his message is the kingdom. In the book of Hebrews, chapters 1 and 12 are given over heavily to the idea of the kingdom. With Peter's preaching, it was the same thing. Second Peter 1, for instance. With the Apostle John, it was the same thing. Look at Revelations chapter 11 and 12. It's all about the kingdom. Now, the definition of the kingdom is, well, to summarize, it is God's presence, it's God's authority, it's God's glory, and that sounds like an empty phrase, but in certain places, Paul says, we are redeemed by the glory of God. So that's an encompassing term for him. So it's simply wherever he rules and wherever his authority and will prevail. And if his kingdom is in us, and we'll read a scripture later that it is in us, then the kingdom is intended to be wherever we are. Years ago, I was sitting in a pastor's conference in Louisville on Monday morning, and uh, one of the brothers was praying for, for God to penetrate, for God's kingdom to penetrate the city of Louisville. And it, it, it registered in my mind that God penetrated the city of Louisville every workday morning at 7 or 8 or 9 a.m., he penetrated every classroom in that whole school where there was a Christian teacher. He penetrated every office and factory and shop where believers were because the kingdom is in us. And if you ever feel sort of uh, stronger than you, the, 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 you thought you were, just remember whose kingdom is in you. That's what's going on. I'd like to paraphrase Isaiah 51, verses 12 through 16 for you. You'll have to trust me here. It's not on the screen. He says, in effect, I am your Lord. Why would you fear to the point of forgetting the Lord your maker? Have you ever had that kind of fear? It just, it, it, your mind is blanked out from realizing that God's the Lord where you are even in that mess of a situation you're in. He goes on to say, why would you be terrified by the wrath of the oppressor? Now that's easy for us sitting on this continent to say. On another continent today, it's a hard matter because the guns are firing, the bombs are falling, the rockets are sailing, and yet God says, 
Why would you be terrified by the wrath of the oppressor? It may be the oppressor in your own mind and spirit that's doing battle against you. It may be the oppressor who's marched into your country and is destroying it as he goes. But he says, why would you be terrified by the wrath of the oppressor? You belong to me. That's Isaiah 51. Now, the thing to realize, and the thing that's so easy for us to forget, is that God's kingdom is indeed eternal. I can say that without too much mental struggle. But the kingdom is also present right now. And that's a little tougher to really get in the grasp of me saying, yes, I do believe. But John the Baptist was preaching in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 3, referring to the approach of Jesus, who might have been showing up in the edge of the congregation already when he said this. He said, the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. And in Luke 11, Jesus is talking to those who question his authority. He says, you can't forgive sin. You can't drive out. You can't. And, but he does it. And he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, that impresses me. It's not his mighty arm right there. That's Okay. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come to you. Is that present enough for you? Okay. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk or words, or we should say our theology or preaching or writing. It's a matter of power. Paul was the one who also said the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we're dealing with authority and power in every case. Never forget the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus commands us to pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? That's right here, where we are. On earth as it is in heaven. Now that's moderately encouraging to me. In the New Testament, there are two primary demonstrations of the presence and the power of the kingdom. And of course, all the Bible demonstrates the power and authority of the kingdom. But two in the New Testament stand out. One is the resurrection. It became the linchpin of all New Testament theology. Everywhere they went, they talked about Jesus. He was killed, but he rose from the dead. The enemy is great, but the resurrection overcame all enemies. That is the demonstration. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says to John, who was under tough circumstances himself, in exile on an offshore island prison camp, cut off from all the people whom he had nurtured and taught and shaped and shared fellowship with for a long, long, long time. But as an old man, he was in prison, and yet, on the Lord's Day, where was he? 
in the spirit. He was in touch with God in a hard place. So every hard place that comes your way, somewhere down in you, just, just rejoice because that's a doorway for God. He was in the Spirit when it was not likely that he would be in the Spirit. And here's what he said. He whom John had, been, had known about his crucifixion the whole time, he said, I am the living one. Until you know the backstory, you don't know all the meaning of this sentence right here. And he goes on to explain, I was dead. It was not a faint or an optical illusion or a propaganda. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And there's another phrase here. I hold the keys. Of death and hell. I am in charge. I have authority even over death and hell. That's the kingdom that we were a part of. In Romans chapter 6 verse 4. Paul says. We were buried with him into death. Now it doesn't explain for sure. But he used this analogy of baptism at times. And baptism signifies the death to the old self. And then the resurrection into new life. We were buried with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live this new resurrection life. So what is there? To ultimately fear. We fear the in-between, of course. We fear the present hardship, the difficulty, the suffering, the loss of loved ones, the tyranny of evil, and so many of us in the world. But ultimately, we too will share in this total victory over death and hell. Jesus does hold those keys. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. We still don't know how to describe it all in just a few words. The Bible is pretty straightforward. It just says what happened. And we say, no, no. And the whole crowd in town was saying, no, no, no. What in the world is going on? They've got to be drunk. And Peter explains what's happening. He says, this is what Joel several hundred years before, had prophesied. He says, I will pour out my Spirit, who is the representation of the authority and power of, of, of Jesus. I will pour out my Spirit on everybody who believes. Everybody. Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? God is pouring out His Spirit on you because it's important that you be strong and victorious and confident in Him. I will pour out my Spirit on all, uh, Joel said, and it will result in prophecies, dreams, visions, signs, and wonders, and here's the purpose. 
so that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord or the authority or the kingdom of the Lord will be saved, redeemed. We think of saved as a momentary thing, and a new birth is a momentary thing. But to be redeemed by the Father from all sorts and all descriptions of bondage and condemnation and fear and frailty and all the rest. The purpose is that everybody who calls on this kingdom will be saved. And that was so true that the steady theme of the book of Acts became that the word that was being preached was confirmed with signs and wonders and miracles over and over and over again. Theology came along at some point and said, well, that was all limited to the first century. We are not bound by theology. We are bound by the scripture. What's astounding is God knows us and he still commits the kingdom to us. Can you believe? It's serious poor judgment, in my opinion, on his part. <laughs> but he has given this kingdom to us, and I want to show you how the scriptures say it. In Matthew 6, Jesus told us another way to be careful in what we ask of God. He says, the primary thing, the initial thing, the uh Con continuing thing is to seek above all else, what? The kingdom of God. That's right. If you're hungry, hunger for his kingdom, his authority, his power, his glory, his mighty deeds, his interventions, his miracles beyond explanation. Seek first the kingdom of God. And in case you think you're too, uh, too unworthy or too weak or too doubting or too whatever, in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. Now, after that, how many of us would raise our hands to say, I am not worthy of receiving anything of the kingdom of God? You'd have to fly in the face of God's clear statement to say, I'm not worthy. I'm not ready. When the Bible says you are worthy because God's made you worthy. You are capable because he's the one who equips you. And... Uh, as Ethel Waters used to say, he don't sponsor no flops anyway. Okay. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within you. He was talking to a relatively small group of novice believers. And he said, the kingdom is in you, in you, in you. Earlier in Luke 12, he was talking to his own disciples and he said, don't be afraid, little flock. And it was a little flock at the time. It was a sort of a timid bunch with mixed motivations, if you remember. But he said, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased, not mournful or regretful, pleased to give you the kingdom. 
I'm trying to get something in your heads because we drift away from this. We drift downhill from it. We talk ourselves out of this truth again and again and again. And theologians do it too. But it's not true. The Father is pleased to give you and me and other very, very ordinary people his kingdom. It's a serious gift and, of course, a serious responsibility. In Matthew 28, <clears throat> end of the chapter, in his last words, according to Matthew's account, to his followers, he said, all authority... Where? In heaven and on earth. On earth is given to me. Because of that, I command you. I don't just mention it as an option. I command you to go make disciples, baptizing them, teaching all the things I've told you, because I am where? With you. I am with you even to the end. No question, no condition, no backing off. In uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 2 through 10, Peter is approached by a beggar. I'm feeling like I've already said this because I was sharing it with some other people in the back room. Peter is approached by a beggar who asks him for a gift. And Peter is honest on both counts. I have no money. But on the other count, such as I do have, I give you. Do you believe that we should be able to do that? To give something of God's power and authority and dominion and deliverance and restoration in every sense of the word. What I do have, I give you. Because Peter was already convinced, and this was very soon after his total humiliation. He was convinced that the kingdom had been given to him. So he said, in the name of Authority, title of Jesus, rise up and walk. Now, how many of you remember what happened after he said that? Okay. We have been given the kingdom. Hebrews 12 follows this up, verse 28. It says, since we are receiving, not did receive or shall receive, we are receiving an unshakable kingdom Worship God with reverence and awe because he is awesome. Worship him with confidence and hope and the nerve to ask for another blessing or another intervention or another forgiveness or whatever it needs to be for yourself or for whoever. Ask because we have received and are receiving an unshakable kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we proclaim Jesus. But he didn't stop there. He says, we proclaim Jesus as Lord. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. 
Lord over every other authority and dominion and power. And then he says in verse 7 of that same chapter, we preach the riches of Jesus Christ and we have this treasure. Listen carefully. The sentence goes on, but I want you to pause right there. We have this treasure. Do you hear me? Okay. We have this treasure. Now he points out that we have it in, in clay pots. Because all the glory needs to be to God instead of us. Don't bow down and worship the clay pot. Worship the Lord, the one who has the power. We have this treasure. In Ephesians 3, he goes on to say, We declare the awesome riches of, the, of Christ the King. And then in verse 9 of that passage, he says, We are to show this to everybody. We are to demonstrate to them that Jesus is the King. That's what it's saying. Let us demonstrate to the world around us that Jesus is King over all. King of kings, Lord of lords. And then in verse 10, he gets even more specific. Demonstrate this to the authorities in the spiritual realm. I don't know how your translation reads, but that's the gist of it in any of them. Demonstrate the authority of Jesus to spiritual demons and powers in the spiritual realm. Now that's not a game, but it is a possibility. And it is a command. Tell Satan who is Lord. You've heard testimonies of people who were tormented sometimes by things in their minds, their hearts, their history, their guilt, their everything else. And sometimes all they could do is just repeat the name Jesus. 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 Years ago, a family called me late at night because a member of their family was threatening to kill himself. And uh, I went down, naive and innocent and foolish and everything else. When I got there, this individual, who was a highly educated person, this individual was on his hands and knees in the grass, ripping up clumps of turf. And I was looking at that and not getting too close to it, in a minute, he gripped the grill of his car and bent it with his bare hands. And I immediately went to my uh, ultimate resource. I started saying, Jesus, 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 in the name of Jesus. Jesus has dominion over you. Within a few minutes... He had calmed and quieted. He was led into the house, put to bed. I don't know what permanent result ever came of that, but this demonstration of the power of God uh, took away his death wish, took away the crisis for the family, and I felt very much like Peter. He was bigger than I was. He was angrier than I was. He was threatening but the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus 
has a power far beyond what most of us have ever comprehended. All of this, he says, is that through faith in Jesus, in verse 12, through faith and Jesus' authority and his work, what he says and what he does, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, it's hard for me to approach God without abject humility and apologizing and everything else because we are clay pots. But this is so, as Ephesians ends in chapter 6 of Ephesians, so that we can be strong in the might and the power of Jesus Christ. Whatever we think we have right now of the idea of his strength and confidence in his strength, God's calling us to keep going. Get more, get more, get more. Because if you follow him, there's going to be battle. And at any moment in this world of ours, battles are going on. And I keep thinking of Europe right now, and that's vicious. But in everyday life, with the daily decisions you make, the dilemmas you face, the mistakes you make, the failures you experience, if we follow him, it's not the same as hiding in a corner until it's all over. It's walking into the fray with confidence and hope because the kingdom has been given to us. There's a tragic warning in Matthew 21. It's directed to other people, but it is also, I'm sure, directed to us. Matthew 21, 43. Jesus is in a discussion with the chief priests and Pharisees of his day, the primary religious leadership of his day. And he says a wrenching thing to them. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to somebody else. Given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now I'm telling you right now, we have the kingdom. I believe we have the kingdom. God's demonstrated it through the, through the body of Christ. Through so many of those who've trusted him when there was nothing else in the world to trust. But remember, God's kingdom is given to us, but it's a stewardship and not a possession. You know the difference? Whose kingdom is it? As long as it's his kingdom, it'll stay on course. It'll do what it's designed to do. It'll defeat the enemy in us and around us, in my mind, in my heart, in my history, and in this world in which I live. It will prevail. We must never forget whose kingdom it is and why it has been given into our hands. A people who will produce the fruit of the kingdom. There's another warning, and it's just implicit everywhere in Scripture. I'll put it this way. Never let the kingdom obscure the king. The whole message here is not about what power we can exercise. 
It's what relationship we have with the king. He's a he and not an it. Never forget the difference. Hebrews 12 is a command to us to focus totally on Jesus the king. Verse 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the beginner and the ender of this entire crusade, the author and the finisher, and that he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, God's throne, his seat of authority. In rough uh, parallel, I would say it this way, his kingdom is what he does. His person is who he is. His person includes the heart, the will, the obedience, the indescribable love that caused him to go through what he went through to provide what he provided for us. He is our atoner, our redeemer, our captain, our victor. And he tells us in John 17, 3, eternal life is not to be able for some, to some degree at some time to exercise this awesome authority of the kingdom. Eternal life is to know him, to know him. It's relational underneath everything else. So what I'm telling you today we have been authorized by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to pray in His authority, believing that He has all authority, to overcome by His authority the wounds, the failures, the accusations, the strongholds in our lives, in our families, in this world. We are authorized to defy satanic spirits and powers by God's finger. We are authorized to renounce in the authority of the kingdom the bondages and the fears and the doubts that cripple and immobilize us. We are authorized, and we have to be enabled here. It, it takes God's help. We are authorized by the kingdom to love with his powerful love because God's love touches and changes hearts and lives. Our affection for somebody may or may not, but his love has supernatural authority and power. It even says that we are authorized by the King of Kings to worship with victorious freedom because he deals with our unworthiness. He deals with our condemnation. He deals with our doubts and our fears. He deals with our crises and threats and obligations and oppressions. It proclaims him. Here's the point. We must not fail. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We must not fail to claim our inheritance and to be stewards of what he has put at our disposal. Now, it even sounds presumptuous to say that we are among those to whom the kingdom has been committed. But I do believe that. I believe we have encountered Jesus, the king. 
And it's not just to cleanse our hearts one time and make us feel better. It's to bring us into his program of conquering the world for his kingdom. Proclaiming his lordship. Paul said we proclaim Jesus not just as savior and model and teacher and encourager, but as Lord. That's why some people uh, uh, reacted so strongly against Jesus. When he even walked into a village, the demons start crying out, don't come here, don't come here. It's because he was not just the healer, the helper, the encourager, the blesser. He was Lord. And he was dealing with that kingdom all the time. All of his time on earth. When he went up on the mountain alone to pray, he was fighting the battle. When he went to the wilderness after his baptism, he was fighting the battle. And he was doing it for you and me. And he says, I want you to do it for the people who don't yet know me. We must not fail to claim our inheritance. I know we don't deserve it. I know we're not worthy of even approaching the presence of God. But he says, come, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Rest from your condemnation. From your guilt, from your doubts, from your fears, from your mistakes, from your frailties. Seventy times seven, and I don't know that he keeps count even then. But he says, you are my stewards. And I want you to st uh, stand, if you would, and sing this song with me. It's an old one, but uh, it's got good words. Of the kingdom, we are joined as with the sun. We are children of the kingdom. We are family. We are one. We shall reign forever. Men and angels shout and sing. All dominion shall be given to the family of our King. Hands of the Father, we are joined with the sun we are children of the kingdom we are one father we bow before you it's not a sign of regret or weakness or dread or fear it's with recognition you are the king of all other kings. You are the king of all other kings. You have dominion over every other dominion in the earth. And it's not just for eternity, it's for right now. Help us, help us in Jesus' name 
to be good stewards of what you are trying to give us and want us to have. It's your good pleasure that we receive the kingdom. And we praise you that we can feel armed for the action. We can feel prepared for the opportunity. We can be equipped for whatever you want us to do. We rest in that, not with slackness, but with vigor and courage and divine energy. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Would you be seated for a moment? This, I rejoice to say, is one of those times when we share the Lord's broken body and shed blood for our benefit. Uh, on the screen, I hope, I, I don't know if I got the word to you guys, there'll be something that I want you to follow me as I read. You can even speak it along with me if you wish. This is based on 1 Corinthians 11, verses 25 and 26. Our hope for the future is found in the past. The Lord claimed us as his own before he created the world. Jesus came to die over 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty for our sins. The miracles of yesterday give us confidence in God's power today. For our faith to endure, we must remember all he's done. Remember God's promise to send a Savior. Remember Jesus, the fulfillment of that covenant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So remember his death that made you alive. Remember who you were before knowing Jesus, the fear, the guilt, and the confusion that filled your life. Remember to share in communion keeping the knowledge of Christ alive in your mind and heart. The teams are going to come forward. Uh, when they do, come in small enough increments that you won't clog up the aisles anywhere. Not much danger today. And uh, come before them and prepare your heart. Prepare your heart and just to say, Lord, I hope it's clean in your presence Prepare your heart to receive, because this is something God is giving us. You and I and these uh, teams here are conduits of something God has doing. Don't worry about the fine points of theology in this. Just remember, God is giving himself to us for our redemption, our reconciliation, and our service to him. He's equipping us. Don't be hesitant about receiving what he has provided. Be a good steward of what he has.